0: Move, go, walk, and flow. This podcast, Special Needs in Motion, is dedicated to helping individuals learn to move and function at their best. Listen along to learn a little, laugh a little, and be inspired. Please like and share so others can have access and join our community. Well, let's go. I'm your host, Ilana, a physical therapist, product developer, mom, wife, author, blogger, and known to many as The Idea Therapist. I love a great discussion, connecting and coaching the families with whom I work, and it is a pleasure to be your host. Just a quick note, if you would like to sponsor an episode, please reach out to me, Ilana, I-L-A-N-A, at theideatherapist.com, or check the show notes. And any information shared on this podcast should not be taken as direct advice, and you should consult your local therapist, professional, or doctor before trying anything suggested in this podcast. Hi, I'm Ilana, your host of Special Needs in Motion. And today I'm privileged to have with me Amanda Hall, an out of the box thinker and physical therapist. I actually ran across Amanda on the pediatric physical therapy Facebook group where a question was posted about toe walking and her name kept popping up. And I reached out to Amanda to find out that she's quite skilled in this area of serial casting. And she was kind enough to offer her time for this interview. So I'm excited to learn myself about this topic. And I think if you're a parent or a therapist, you'll find this podcast quite informative. So, Amanda,
1: welcome. Hello. Thank you. Uh,
0: you work in a specialty clinic where you do orthotics, wheelchairs, adaptive equipment, and you specialize in serial casting, and you're a well known presenter on the subject. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do and how you became known as the Madcaster?
1: <laughs> sure. Um, so, yeah, I have had a, been lucky to have a really interesting career. I trained in Seattle, but for most of my career, I've been actually been on here in Washington, D.C. And for the past 12 years now, I've been at a place called the HSC Pediatric Center. And it's specialty hospital that works with really kids with really complex healthcare needs. And I started an outpatient there and and that was in, inpatient and in complex care and acute neural rehab and a NICU step down. And then, as you said, right now, I'm in our specialty clinic. And what I found was moving there from having worked previously for about five years in, in a less complex compilation, population was that a lot of the rules that I had learned for specifically for serial casting and also for orthotics when applying with the patients I was working with because they were such complex cases. Yeah, And so I had a chance to kind of like step back and say, well, why is this a rule? And what is the basis of this rule? And what is the, what, are the, what does the literature tell us? And even if we don't have a study about the kind of patient I'm seeing, what relevant studies can we look at? And what how can we apply that science to more complex cases? And so I've been able to kind of step back and build a framework out for hopefully treating any patient that you might come across, even if they might be an outlier from the protocol that you might have initially learned.
0: Can you give like an example of one that, let's say, you know, the old rules didn't work for?
1: Yeah. So, you know, for, for I work with, um, you know, children who have cerebral palsy and for some who have a diplegic um, health, you know, diagnosis for cerebral palsy, sometimes there's with a significant crouch gait, there's significant pronation and eversion. And when you we were using a plaster and fiberglass protocol for that kind of foot, a lot of patients would get um, just excessive pressure and weren't able to tolerate that kind of cast for that more involved foot, especially for the way that that kind of cast has to be applied. And so for someone with a more, let's say, a teenager who's got changes to their both their bony structure and their ligaments and, and the way that they're presenting with By modifying the technique and using different materials, I've been able to get much more involved, like significant progress with much more involved patients. And even if they're not going to get to, you know, maybe even independent walking, but maybe they're able to tolerate their braces better so that they can be in a stander.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Right. So like with the few children I have with CP, you know, a lot of them are in AFOs and things. So they've never even been exposed necessarily to serial casting.
1: Right. And again, and that's great. So serial casting, hopefully, you know, the best case is that you can avoid me altogether. Right. So with the reason that most of us don't require casting is that when we walk we're getting a therapeutic stretch of our gastroc every time we walk and so for some patients who lose that experience of what elaine owen calls therapeutic gait or getting that functional elongation with which stepping that's when you might lose range of motion as the as the child goes through growth so as the long bones grow the muscles aren't getting that therapeutic gait to help them elongate and so they can lose range of motion and that's when they show up to my clinic for casting. But, you know, if they're having a great uh, orthotic program and a great home program and getting really good PT, sometimes you can avoid casting and it's, that's, it's not a bad thing that they're not having to have casts.
0: Right. So, so the benefit would be to enhance that therapeutic gait so that they can have exactly. a more normalized gait. Right? right. So the
1: goal of casting is to regain that so then hopefully they can return to the orthotics that they're using with you and their PT program with you. It's sort of a quick Got intervention, it. but, you know, but it's more conservative than surgery to help regain that range of motion.
0: Sure. And so most of the children are kids with CP
1: or high tone right I, mean, I have a i I'm really lucky to have a really um wide variety of caseloads, so I do have patients who toe walk and are fully independently ambulating but are walking with a toe walking pattern. I have patients with Um, different types of cerebral palsy. I have patients with SMA and muscular dystrophy. So I've really been lucky to have a wide variety and that helps me to kind of flesh out my framework to hopefully include all the patients. We have even a lot of diagnoses that I have to look up when they come in because there may be Uh only one or two of them (laughs) with a unique genetic diagnosis.
0: Right, and what I love about my job, you know, as a home health physical therapist, is um, is every child so unique and different. So it's like a exactly new, it's a new puzzle coming in. So I think exactly you never get bored, right? Yeah, right, right. And I really depend on people like yourself. You know, I refer my patient, my clients out. You know, if I see that they need something, I'll send them to a clinic or to a hospital where they can get an expert like yourself, you know, to
1: do Right. And like so, that. and that's a good case. So like that, that's when I would recommend casting is if you're working with a patient and they have orthotics, but they're no longer able, their orthotics aren't fitting correctly. Or if you think, geez, the orthotic I would have to make for this foot would be, you know, a really mm-hmm. high heel, or it would be a, you know, have to be a pretty extensive orthotic. And they used to, they used to have a lot better correctable posture. That's when it might be a good time to refer to someone to see if casting would be a good, um, right for them.
0: Yeah. And and what kind of process is involved? Like how long is it? Do you keep recasting? Like is it weeks, months?
1: Like Yeah. Um, so it's it's on a weekly basis. And again, the, there isn't great literature that tells us if, you know, weekly is magic, but it's because of a scheduling convention that we often are doing it on a weekly basis. So often, you know, they're coming once a week just like a regular therapy appointment. But in this case, we're applying a new cast every time and that how many weeks really depends on the person. I always tell parents at the beginning that you know, I know I can give you a better guess after the first one by how quickly their range of motion changes. Uh-huh. But if you're lacking a significant amount, it might take longer. And sometimes we never get into full range of motions, but hopefully we can we can get to something that's more functional for the patient. Right. But I tend to give people the guess that it's somewhere in the range of 4 to 8 weeks for most patients. But sometimes it's someone, you know, if they're an 18-month-old who just never who just learned to walk on their toes, it can be literally one cast and they break that pattern. Uh-huh. Or with a teenager who's 15, who's got significant stru- structural changes, sometimes we're doing, you know, up to 12 weeks or, you know, mm-hmm. as long as they're like, in trouble from the physiatrist and they make me stop.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. And what keeps them, so let's say they were in an orthotic, it's not really functional anymore, they go to you, they get casting, now they come back to the orthotic. What, what keeps them from needing the casting over and over again?
1: Right. So again, if they're able to get back into some therapeutic walking or weight bearing, that's best case scenario. So if you're able to do yeah. a walking pattern, that's the best way that your body helps itself to maintain that muscle length. But for someone who's not ambulatory, use of a stander can help that. Uh-huh. And then yes. a lot of our patients will use a, a, a night orthotic or a night stretch splint. So there's a couple of brands of orthotics that are designed to help bring you into dorsiflexion overnight and provide, again, a low load long duration stretch to help increase your range of motion as your bones are growing. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So that can uh, be a way that you can either maintain gains after casting or hopefully prevent having to get casting in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Yeah, so I actually was fortunate enough to, for one of my CP kids, I got a stander and it does wonders, you know? Oh yeah. You that's know? great. Yeah.
1: So um, you can- asked me about the Mad Quester question and I wanted to answer that because it's a oh, Yes. yes. <laughs> so casting I have decided is one of the worst things that we can do to children right like it's more invasive than regular pt and they have to sit there and stay still and it's boring and it's you know ugly and they get a- more questions than usual so from the beginning I've been into like decorating them you know just drawing a picture on with a sharpie or whatever um to uh-huh just to help the, the k- kid be more involved in the process and feel like they're dictating to me what it's going to look like as they're thinking about the design that they want. And then I would, I, uh, my friends, I would, you know, send pictures to my friends, like look at this cast that I did. And some people, this is how long ago it was. We're like, Oh, you should do a Tumblr page. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I had a Tumblr page, but I never really caught on to Tumblr. I didn't understand what I was doing. So I had a few pages up, but that's what I called that. When I had one, it was called diary of a Madcaster. And uh. so when it Instagram times, then I I started posting pictures, you know, and the kids were really into that. They'd be like, yeah, put it on, you know. So I started putting photos of the cast that I was doing on an Instagram page. My, and my handle was Madcaster. And um, I kind of, you know, I work with a lot of boys and or even girls that are into sneakers so sometimes I'll like try to make the cast look like sneakers and I got picked up by some of the sneaker bloggers and then I got a call from MTV and Us Weekly and I got all these articles written up about it because it was something cute and about kids. I so, love that. That's yeah awesome. so it's kind of fun and it's it's silly it sounds silly but I do think that it's an important part of the process because we we take so much autonomy for kids with special needs right we're like sit down stay still. <laughs> right. And so it's my kind of way of being like, you're in charge of this, you're, you know, this is your body and we're working on this together and you're a part of this process. And I do care about the way you feel about how it looks and that it's not just something that I'm putting on you.
0: I love that. That is great. That's fantastic. Your website mentions specific, I can't say it, specificity (laughs) of motion. Can you explain what that is?
1: Yes. That's one of my favorite things. So when we think about the ankle in pediatrics. We often like pretend it's an elbow as if, as long as we find the magical spot of subtalar neutral, all of our forces will go pushing, you know, into dorsiflexion if we push the toes up. But in reality, there's um, many, many, many joints within the ankle and the midfoot. And so it's very common that something else will, as the hindfoot gets stiff or towel curl, which is the actual ankle joint, starts to get stiff. Other, co- other joints within the foot or the midfoot will help to compensate and provide that movement so that you're getting mm-hmm. what is kind of like false dorsiflexion of moving the foot towards the leg, but you're not getting movement in the hind foot. And so that's why when we're, when we're looking at casting and orthotics, we want to make sure that we're being specific, specificity of motion, being specific about where we're applying the forces through joints so that we can actually stretch the the structures that we're intending to stretch. And if you're not careful, if you're paying more attention to the arts and craft of making your cast, it's easy to overstretch structures that are already kind of overstretched because the, the body wants you to go into the more flexible structures, that's the way it's used to moving. So you really have to be trained to be specific and say, no, 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 I wanna target those stiff structures to take the stress off of those over, overstressed structures. Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yes. That makes total sense. That's great. Yeah. Um, now there were a few other things that you mentioned um, to me before we got on here <laughs> that you wanted to talk about, and I would love to hear about them. Um, one was
1: describing the perfect brace through Miss. Oh, P. yeah. I <laughs> so, I mean, I know that, you know, not everybody's working in casting, but I think most of us work with um, kids and, and patients that were some kinds of orthotic and I found, especially as I'm meeting people more around the country, that people have such strong opinions about bracing. And often I'll meet a parent who has had several different braces recommended by different therapists and different doctors and just feels overwhelmed. And so I use the concept of that scene in Miss Congeniality, when William Shatner is asking Miss Rhode Island to describe the perfect date. And she says, 'Cause it's a beauty pageant. And so and then she answers it and she says, I forget which date it is, it's like April twenty third, because it's not too hot and it's not too warm and all you need is a light sweater. And so he was obviously asking about like a night on the town with your sweetie. <laughs> right. And she was like the perfect date on the calendar, right? And so I think that's often what's happening with orthotics, where you you know, one therapist is thinking about the perfect brace for transitioning floor to stand. And then I'm thinking about protecting their ligaments as they develop into an adult. And so we can really confuse a parent with like drastically different recommendations because we're not we're not necessarily answering the same question. So
0: what advice would you give to a parent necessarily? Like how do they go about navigating
1: that? So I think that, you know, often there's more than one answer. I mean, kids need to do more than one thing. So mm-hmm. I often like to say, okay, well, let's do this orthotic for this situation and this orthotic for that situation. And maybe the child has more than one pair of braces. And then you immediately get the question where therapists will say, well, insurance won't pay for that. And I said, but have you asked? Because mm-hmm. I think we far too often are letting, you know, insurance company dictate what's oh, yeah. allowed versus us advocating. And I think it's totally appropriate for us to advocate for our patients and say, no, they're, they have these two different things or three different things that they're doing. Maybe sometimes they wear an orthotic and then sometimes they have something that's simple in their shoe because they want to look fancy at school. And they don't like the look of braces at school. Mm-hmm. But after school. They wear a big tall AFO and go on a walk so that they get the kind of walking that I want them to have, but they don't have to have it at school. So I think it's a, it's a combination of working with the family that you have and the, pa- the patient and the parent and their goals. And then understanding that there's probably maybe more than one. It's just like in a kitchen, you have your spatula and your, you know, a slotted spoon in yours, you know, I don't really cook. So I'm making these things up, <laughs> <laughs> but you might need different um, things depending on what you're doing. And we shouldn't expect necessarily one device to fulfill every functional need that the patient has.
0: Right. It's a dynamic process.
1: It is. And people right. are changing. And I yeah. think sometimes we often are like, well, insurance will pay for one every six months and they'll only pay for one. Without us trying to argue against that, or I often, you know, because I work in casting and splinting, I'll make a temp, I'll make one out of casting materials that it can be used as a um, secondary brace for a secondary purpose. That's great. That's great. So
0: you're always thinking out of that box, like you mentioned at yeah. the beginning. You also w- mentioned about earlier with me terminology and the power of our words to patients. Can
1: oh you yeah. Talk okay. A bit about so, that? so that's yeah, that's another soapbox. <laughs> so um, I have been noticing that, you know, I don't think in PT that we are keeping up with society and the language that we use. And even the neuroscience that we're learning about the power of language and the way that using terms that might sound negative to the patient and to the family really actually affects their movement system. And there's something that's so interesting. I was just um, listening to a podcast about the nocebo effect. Do you know what that is? No. It's like the negative placebo effect. And because our brains are fear-based, it's actually much more powerful because our brains are are structured around keeping us safe. So if we say this treatment's not going to work, if we say you have your arm is bad at that, if we say this treatment will make you worse, then that's actually very powerful to the way that the movement system works. And so I think we often in PT, because we have to document that way, end up using a lot of that language with in front of you know the patient mm-hmm. and the family and focusing on what's negative and so i've really been trying to clean up my language and say tell them what they're doing and tell them how they're strong and telling them what's better mm-hmm. of, you know and just being aware of the power of that words and then avoiding words like deformity which people are still using to describe like a plantar flexion restriction but you know, deformity has a meaning in the overall general culture, you know, like you get a, you know, mental image of Quasimodo. And it's like, Uh (laughs) I want to be telling people that they have a deformity, you know, and even and I work with a lot of kids that have structural variants, like unique facial features and stuff. But I need to be aware of the fact that we know better now. And I'm going to say, you have a restricted joint, you have a structural variance, and you're going to be so strong. And this is what we're going to do. But not to use those words that might really be damaging to someone's self esteem. And you think about the way that you know, i struggle struggled with my own body image, who doesn't, right? And so right. If we're helping a young person define the way that they feel around their own body. If we can be careful about the language that we use, I think it can really affect their self-esteem as they're growing because their PT is often the most important person who's talking about them in their body as they're growing.
0: I love that. So, you know, we are the cheerleaders and we have the opportunity with our language. I- I'm repeating what you're saying is to yeah. empower them. So maybe we could look at a joint as opposed to being deformed as being exceptional.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. I work with a lot of unique bodies and they're and I've been really excited to work with them. And I never should let them feel like, wow, look at you. Look at what's wrong with you. You know, like, look at this, look at this guy over here. You know, I never want them to feel like that. Mm hmm. And even for patients that ne- might necessarily not express it back to me, um, I have a lot of patients who don't have as much language or ability to interact with the environment. But I know that it inf- impacts them on some level. So I'm still careful about the things that I say.
0: Right. Well, that, that's really good advice. Tell us about the roast. and. The-
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I have this parable that I use when I'm teaching. And um, it's not my parable, but it, it works really well, I think, for these situations and the way that we sometimes can get into clinical boxes um, when we're when we're SPT. So there's a little girl and she's learning to make a roast from her mom and they season it and they do all the things that one must do when you make a roast. And then when it's time to put it in the oven, mom says, then you cut the, the ends off and you put it in the oven. And the little girl says, why? And mom says, because that's how you make a roast. And the little girl says, why? And mom says, because that's how you make a roast. So the little girl keeps pushing. So they reach out to grandma, who taught mom to make a roast. And she says, well, that's how you make a roast. But of course, the little girl, she's very inquisitive. She's probably going to be a PT when she grows up. And so she, they finally reach out to great grandma, who's at her lovely assisted living facility. And she says, well, I don't know why you guys do it, but I did it because my pan was too small. <laughs> and that parable I use to point out that sometimes we get stuck following these clinical rules. That yeah. We're not asking why. It's like a wearing white after Labor Day kind of rule that we are maybe like being like, well, so and so taught that this res- teacher that I respect taught me that. But often the teacher that you respect hasn't met your patient. And so you might need to modify that rule or maybe completely throw that out if it's no longer appropriate. And so I just wanna bring that into our attention because I think sometimes we tend to be like, well, it's this diagnosis, so you must do this. And I think it's important that we're, we're never thinking like we're following a recipe, but we're also asking why as clinicians and scientists. And the other end of the spectrum is the parachute. So there was actually a study published in um, the British Medical Journal where they did a systematic review of all the randomized controlled trials of parachutes to prevent death from falling from planes. And they weren't able to find any with, you know, randomized controlled with, with, with a, you know, with a good study consult to say that there's, that parachutes work without it being maybe a healthy cohort effect. And they wrote, published that study kind of facetiously to say that that doesn't mean that parachutes are not useful for falling out of airplanes. And it's not appropriate to do studies where we let half the people fall out of the plane with no parachute. Okay. And I think often in pediatrics, because what we do is very hard to study, and it's not often not appropriate to let half the kids fall out of the plane or to grow up with no intervention and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I get frustrated when I hear people kind of dismiss a whole thing like, all of NDT or no orthotics because there isn't studies to show it or because studies were looking at a certain outcome. Because I think what we do is very hard to study and may need a more nuanced approach to like applied science and maybe a different way of looking at the literature and a different way of designing studies instead of saying, well, there's no literature for this, so it's not good in like those um, big systematic reviews that give things red lights because they're just not appropriate for that kind of examination. Right. So I think that's why I use those two extremes to say, like, are you following your recipe to make your roast, or are you throwing the parachute out with the bath without with the bathwater, right? right? So I think it's important for us to remember that those are both pitfalls that we can fall into, and be like, well, studies show blah blah blah, but then ask was like that study appropriate for the patient that you're working with, and then this, on the other end, just be like, well, this is the rule that I have, and to ask that question. So. Those are my two just to kind of have in your head when you're thinking about a patient to like, remember that you have your own brain and that you're able to apply science and you're able to modify things that's appropriate for the patient in front of you.
0: And to be a keen observer, like we're always evaluating, you
1: know, yes. so
0: just the first time we see them is constant evaluation. I always get annoyed that you write an evaluation at the beginning, you know, and of course with your, our assessments, we can always be adding those in or. But at the same time, you know, it's like it's not just a one time, you know, for the insurance company is like send in the evaluation. Right. But we're always evaluating.
1: That's so true. That's so true. Right. And what we, I think it is really nuanced what we're doing. You're always evaluating and you're always kind of tweaking what you're what you're doing with the patient. And again, how how do you study that? Right. How do you study the nuanced ways that your therapist changes things within your session? I think it's, and I'm not saying we shouldn't try to study it, but it's often, I think it's going to take a more nuanced model of research to really look at effectively in some cases.
0: Right. Okay. So tell me a little bit um, about
1: advocacy. Don't be jaded is what you like. So, yeah. So this was my uh, really exciting story. And I think, you know, this day and age where like, we're always protesting something or maybe we just hear about protests everywhere and we think nothing ever changes, um, this is actually a success story. So I like to share it so that people can be encouraged by it and, and think about taking this kind of action. So a, f- a couple of years ago, InviCare, the big rehab company uh, who owns the smaller company of ASL. And ASL makes a, a lot of the really specialized switches for power mobility. And in the area that I work in, we do a lot of power add-on systems where we're taking a manual wheelchair and then using an add-on system like an eFix to provide the person mobility. But because in this area in Washington, D.C., a lot of people don't have accessible homes. And so you know if you live in a third floor walk-up, you can't have a 300-pound power chair. So a lot of our patients use a manual chair with a power add-on system to it. And if you have a complex movement system, maybe you need to Drive that with your head using a head array or with specialized switches. Mm -hmm. So, the over our company that owns um, ASL, which is the company that makes a lot of those specialized switches, was we were like putting in orders and they were like getting delayed, and there was something about like they're not going to fill these orders anymore. And we did some research and found out that they had decided that those kind of specialized things that we were doing, adding uh, adaptive switches onto a power add on system was quote unquote, low volume, and they were going to stop doing it. And that is a huge impact for a lot of the patients that I work with. And again, I'm sure it's low volume overall for InvaCare, but for those kids who have very complex movement system and very complex environmental barriers, or not even technically very complex, but have environmental barriers like stairs in their lives, it would could totally make someone dependent. We could say like, yeah, you could have a power chair, but you can only drive it at school. Well, that's so limiting for someone, right? If they're not able to move independently, but they they would otherwise have that ability. Right. So um, I talked to, I do work in Washington, DC. So I have some friends that work in advocacy and I talked to them about it. And so a friend helped me draft a letter and I got a whole bunch of signatures sent it out to everybody I knew and we posted it online and InvoCare, stopped it. In fact, they actually stopped moving ASL from their um, smaller, or from their uh, separate office in Texas. They were going to move them to Invictory headquarters, and they actually stopped that move, kept their office open, and now they're continuing to provide the product because we made us think about it and, you know, uh-huh. try to get them online into that. <laughs> but, you know, and I was just like, I was really surprised. I kind of thought, you know, we're going to do this campaign, and then it's not going to work, and we're going to be mad, And but it actually worked. <laughs> and they talked to me, um, they literally called me since I was the one that started it up and talked to me about it. And and it was just amazing to see that we actually could make a difference in that way and that they could see that, like, okay, this might be low volume, but you're in the business of treating complex rehab, which is often low volume. This might not be a lot of people that need this product, but for mm-hmm. those who need this product, and there was no competitor on their market. There was nothing else that we could offer. Right, so, so you needed that. Exciting. Yeah, so it's just really exciting that we actually, you know,
0: you little made a change.
1: Goliath and Goliath listened to us, you know?
0: Yes. I love that. So you made, you made a huge impact, but explain to me, what is it, what does it do? Like, so they have a power chair, but they have stairs. So how do they, how does, what is it? What does the ASL do?
1: So, um, so a power add-on system is like um, you have any manual wheelchair, whether it's Tilton Space or a regular chair, right? Mm -hmm. And a power add-on is like wheels that have a motor in them. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's much lighter than a regular power wheelchair so it's like you're replacing uh-huh. those light with wheels like bicycle wheels replacing those wheels with wheels that have a motor in them and then there's a like a car battery kind of thing like a battery that fits under the chair yes I've so seen it yeah overall like it's still heavy like each one is probably like 30 pounds but it's not 300 pounds so it's cumbersome for a family but you can take it in and out of a car you know you can have a Corolla and still you know, transfer this wheelchair, whereas otherwise you would have had to get an adaptive van. So for patients with limited resources and got it, uh, you know, limited finances and living in stairs, they're still able to have it. And it doesn't have all the features that a full power chair would have, but, yeah, but
0: I hear you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so i familiar
0: because I worked at um, Shepherd Center here yeah. in Atlanta many years ago. And so, I mean, I'm, it's been many years. I'm not yeah. quite as up yeah. to date with it, but I just,
1: you know, yes, but so that's a power add-on, which wasn't going to be taking off the market. But like that's a, There's a brand called eFix that we use frequently for that, and that's mm-hmm. with the Invacare. But ASL provides the specialized switches. So if you can't use a joystick, right, if you can use a joystick, that was never going to go away. But right. for a lot of our patients that aren't functional with a joystick, maybe they're driving with a head array. And they're using mm-hmm. head movement or their chair, or they're using specialized switches for their hands because they have very little hand motion. So those were the patients who would be affected. So, again, it is a small volume. It is not very many people who have that limited uh, environmental access and then also need a very specialized control. But, but those are very important people to me, even if there's not a lot of them.
0: I, do you want to speak a little bit about toe walkers or?
1: you don't Sure. Have to I mean, okay. yeah, it was interesting because the question on that came up, you said on yeah. that, on that pediatric Facebook group um, that we started talking about. And it's interesting because I'm actually I would say not the expert in toe walking because I see such a variety of kids. I do see toe walkers, but some people are seeing much more higher volume of that. But I do think it's important to remember that, again, that's a kind of a basket diagnosis. There's lots of different things that can be causing a person to toe walk. So if they're toe walking because they just never got enough time exploring their foot as an infant and it just feels uncomfortable when they put their foot on the ground, so they go up on their toes and they just kind of develop that pattern, that can be something, you know, is it that their stomach is upset and they're pushing off, you know, away from their stomach and that's driving them up on their toes? Is it related to underlying autism spectrum diagnoses? Sensory. Is it, is it right? Is there, is there some sort of like restriction in the, in the joint itself or that the gastrocnemius as it developed had a shorter set length. So I think it's important again when you people tend to st- start citing studies and say well this works for toe walkers this doesn't work for toe walkers but I think it's important to remember that's a heterogeneous group that's a that's actually a symptom, right? Toe walking is a way of walking that you might be doing for lots of different reasons. So I think again don't have a roast recipe, don't say for every toe walker I do this. I think it's important to walk in and evaluate them. And kind of get an idea of what's probably driving that. Because even with serial casting, I can do a serial casting for a toe walker, and then they'll go right back to it if we didn't d- treat the thing that was driving or, or encouraging them to toe walk in the first place.
0: Right. Yep. I, that's a good point um, yeah. because we all think that, that there, oh, they're toe walking. You know, it's, it's much more complex than that. I have a little bit of background in working with kids with some sensory issues. You know, they they, they are different. It's a different approach mm-hmm. than, you know, kids that have, let's say, limited mobility or something like that.
1: Right. And I've found recently, I've really been like getting into neuroplasticity. And we, even when we say sensory, like sometimes we say sensory and it's sort of a euphemism for somewhere on the autism spectrum. But sometimes it's like sensory, sensory where it's like the person perceives regular touch to their foot as pain. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's specific to around the foot or um, they don't have any sense of what's going on in their foot. So again, that's raising them up onto their toes. And so you can do a lot of activities for exploration where if you can find an age appropriate way for the patient to interact with their foot, like, you know, drawing on their foot or putting, you know, doing, we like to do, um, you know, the kids play Minecraft, so we do feet craft and have them like mm-hmm. build the world in Play-Doh around their foot and then drive a car <laughs> around it and try to make it into a video game so that it feels cool, but just get them to interact with the surface of their foot um, to give them their brain more information. And there's such great um, information from our colleagues in neurology where if you do those activities, it'll influence not just their sensory system, but also their motor system as they're as they're getting just so much more information about that. And that can really help in a lot of cases, Versus I think, and I'm just bringing that up because sometimes when we say sensory, we're like, okay, shaving cream and and beans and something and just (laughs) desensitize them. But sometimes they just need to explore and get more information. Absolutely.
0: So you you mentioned neuroplasticity, but you could you, I know you have upcoming course that you're teaching at Combined Sections Meeting.
1: Yeah. So, um. Yeah, so that's actually um for when we're recording this next week <laughs> might be in the past after uh, after this air I'm not sure but I'm super excited it's, CSM is in Denver this year and I am doing a course or a, a, a talk on the pediatric foot and ankle and it comes out of I I did a precon for casting at CSM last year and then CSM is so fun because it's all the sections right so you can get to go to ortho talks and neuro talks and Hand section talks, and so I ran around doing that just because there's so many interesting experts to to learn about from all the fields and I was like we're not talking about the foot core or um, strengthening the foot intrinsic we're not talking about neuroplasticity and the pediatric okay. ankle we're not talking about pain science and and uh, and, and so i and, and we're not talking about manual therapy and joint mobilizations to the pediatric ankle, so i that really inspired me. And so that's what I put together for this year for CSM for a talk to just say, what are the things that we're missing in our little pediatric bubble that if we pull from the information from the, pedi- from the physical therapy literature at large, that we can help to apply to the patients that we're working with. So I'm super excited for that.
0: Oh, well, that's great. You speak at other conferences and I mean, you're well known for at least looking at your website. So I want to make sure before we close off here. One, if there's anything else you'd like to share this time, that would be great. And also, if you would share a little bit about where people can find you or find your courses, you know, that would be helpful too. To sure.
1: See. Yeah. Um, well, no, I just appreciate you speaking to me. I um, I love to go on these rants, so thank you. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> and welcome. then, um, yeah. So if people are interested, I um, have a course called Activity Ambulation and AFOS. That's going to be pediatric and neurologic foot and ankle course that's um, going to be offered through education resources and you can get that at edu- courses, educationresourcesinc.com. and that's going to be offered a few places around the country this year so I, I've been offering serial casting courses for a while but that's a little getting a little niche and not everybody's going to be doing casting but most of us have patients with feet so if you're interested in learning this stuff but you're not necessarily going to be doing um casting it's a two-day course, like a weekend course, and um, it's going to be kind of delving into those things I was just talking about. Like, we tend to kind of like either put an orthotic on or not and then go straight into gait training. But I don't think a lot of clinicians feel comfortable specifically treating the foot and ankle. Um, and I think for a lot of pediatric patients, um, that can maybe be an area that we could do a lot more for our patients because it is where we interface with the world And if we can give some direct intervention there, I think we can make a big difference. So we're going to go over all those things. Joint mobilization and um, strengthening for the foot intrinsics, neuroplasticity activities, working on pain. And so that's going to be um, you can find that on my website, which is AmandaHallPT.com. And it's got all the courses there. I'm Oregon through education resources.
0: Okay, well, great. That's so awesome. And you've shared so much information with us. And I love this topic, because like you said, you know, our feet, the ankle, the foot, that's our contact with the ground. You know, yeah. it's, it's so important, um, otherwise, but it's
1: intimidating. To... I think just the language yeah. that people use around it. And I think, you know, I did again with all the people's opinions about the roast and the parachute, I think it could be something that clinicians can just feel a little bit intimidated by and not sure where to start and think they're going to do something wrong. So my goal with the course is to give you the tools to be able to like name the bones and feel comfortable and know that like, okay, I'm making this recommendation and it's okay if someone disagrees with me because I, I can think about it from multiple angles and I can help explain help the parent navigate that system when there are things that multiple ideas that people might have
0: awesome well thank you Amanda I so appreciate your time this evening and sharing just such a little tidbit of your expertise and if people want more you know they can go to your courses or visit your website
1: awesome well thanks so much for having me on I appreciate it Alana.
0: you're welcome have a good evening Thank you for listening and sharing. I really appreciate your helping me spread tips that might be of help to someone you know. And remember that why is not near as important as what and how. Have a special day.